This is the podcast of the German Historical Institute London, a research centre dedicated to supporting and connecting students and scholars from Britain and Germany. The podcast series presents current research in British, German and European history, as well as colonial and global history. For more information on the German Historical Institute London, future events, the GHIL Library, studentships and more podcast episodes, please visit our website at ghil.ac.uk. Welcome to today's GHIL lecture by Barbara Mante on writing a history of right-wing terrorism in post-World War II Germany, chances, challenges and the need for new narratives. Although right-wing terrorism has been a highly relevant issue to German society in recent years, there is still surprisingly little knowledge about its history. This observation applies not only to the general public and the media, but also to historians who have only recently begun to fill this gap. This lecture examines interpretations of right-wing terrorism in Germany after the Second World War. How do they relate to the master narratives of the Federal Republic and how are they entangled with interpretations of National Socialism? What current challenges do historians face in seeking new narratives of right-wing terrorism and to what extent are these narratives contested by existing legends and speculations? Barbara Mante has been a research fellow at the University of Bielefeld since 2020 and an expert on the history of radical right-wing terrorism and violence in the Federal Republic of Germany since 1945. She's currently writing her second book on interpretations of right-wing terrorism in post-World War II Germany, covering the late 1940s to the late 1990s. She looks particularly at how interpretations of right-wing terrorism have related to a master narrative of the Federal Republic and how they entangled also with interpretations of National Socialism. Previously, Barbara Mantel was a research fellow at the University of Düsseldorf in a related project on right-wing and neo-Nazi movements. If you want to read up on some of her work in English, there's an English article on the subject of right-wing terror in the 1970s in West Germany, in the journal Terrorism and Political Violence in the volume of 2018. We hope you enjoy this lecture. Good afternoon. Thank you so much for your kind introduction and for inviting me. Hello to everybody. Today I will talk about a rather unknown chapter in the history of the Federal Republic, right-wing terrorism. Right-wing terrorism is, as we know, not an entirely new phenomenon in modern Germany. You can see here a picture of German Foreign Minister Walter Rathenau, who was murdered by right-wing terrorists in 1922. However, despite its long history, right-wing terrorism is largely a blind spot, which is especially the case for the period between 1945 and 1990, which I will focus on today. It is little known that there have been numerous series of attacks with many deaths during this period. Even more, the most serious terrorist bombing in the history of the Federal Republic to date was the right-wing attack on the Munich Oktoberfest in 1980, killing 13 and wounding over 200 people. Nevertheless, while there are numerous studies on current right-wing terrorism, as well as on the history of left-wing terrorism, 
only very few historical studies on right-wing terrorism in the Federal Republic have been published so far. So the initial question for my talk today is, why is there so little knowledge about the history of right-wing terrorism? Today, I will give you a very brief overview of the most important events and developments of right-wing terrorism between 1945 and today. I will then focus in my main part on where right-wing terrorism is missing from the master narratives of the Federal Republic and where the history of right-wing terrorism challenges these very master narratives. To lead you into my talk, I have brought two examples. They are meant to point out a basic problem of the interpretations of right-wing terrorism. First, the question of what was and was not right-wing terrorism has always been highly controversial. Second, the question of how threatening right-wing terrorism was for German society has also always been the subject of numerous debates. My first example shows a headline after the attempted murder of Rudi Dutschke in 1968. Dutschke was a well-known left-wing activist and the face of the student movement in Western Germany in the 1960s. In April 1968, he was gunned down in the open street in West Berlin. The perpetrator was a young man called Josef Bachmann, who acted out of right-wing and anti-communist motives. Dutschke survived seriously injured, but in 1979, over 10 years after the attack, he died as a result of the assassination. The headlines of the tabloid Bild read the next day, terror in Berlin. What was meant, however, and you probably figured it out already, was not Bachmann's terror but the violent demonstrations organized by the students in protest against the attack. This example indicates that our perception of terror and terrorism is not given by nature, but is subject to interpretive struggles. My second example touches on the issue of memory and commemoration. The memory of the 1980 Oktoberfest attack has always been controversial. For a long time, it was very difficult for the survivors and the relatives to enforce a dignified commemoration. Government representatives stayed away. You see here a newspaper clipping from 1984 saying that the local council rejected a request to close the Oktoberfest earlier in order to hold a commemorative event. However, in 2020, last year, something happened which was a result of a longer process of change. High-ranking politicians, including Federal President Ang-Walter Steinmeier, took part in the commemoration of the 40th anniversary. In this highly symbolic picture, you can see here the Federal President in the second row, together with Markus Söder, the Bavarian Minister-President, behind the survivors and the relatives. Unnoticed for decades, victims have now been assigned a role right up front. Topical perceptions of terrorist threats play a role here, especially the terrorist attacks in Halle and Hanau in 2019 and 2020. So current incidents change our interpretation of historical events. Even though I do not assume that there is the one history of right-wing terrorism, I would like to give you a brief overview of what I think have been the main cornerstones. 
when we talk about right-wing terrorism before 1990, we are by no means talking about a marginal phenomenon. According to my calculation, there were about 40 right-wing terrorist groups or individuals between 1945 and 1990. I counted over fatalities. For comparison, the historian Johannes Hürter pointed to 38 murders of left-wing terrorism in the same period. In post-war Germany, first right-wing terrorist activities started no later than shortly after the end of the Second World War. I want to highlight, for example, explosive attacks against Spruchkammern, which were the German civilian courts handling denazification. You see here a picture from the courtroom after an explosion in Nuremberg in January 1947. In the 1950s, anti-Semitic and anti-communist groups became active, mainly amassing blacklists of enemies, namely Jews and communists. The attempt on Dutschke's life in 1968 was the prelude to a long series of right-wing terrorist attacks and murders until about 1983. These many attacks were flanked by a radicalization of the right-wing scene. Many activists were disappointed with the radical right party, National Democratic Party of Germany, NPD, which had raised high hopes but failed to enter the Bundestag in 1969. In the 70s, groups emerged that turned militancy into a political tool. So-called Wehrsportgruppen, military sports groups, were particularly popular, especially the Wehrsportgruppe Hoffmann, which you can see on the picture on the right. Mainly young and male neo-Nazis were trained in the use of weapons. These groups were not terrorists, but they became networks where later right-wing terrorists met and became radicalized. In these days, right-wing terrorists related their attacks to changes in society, for example, the easing of tensions in the East-West conflict especially the fight against the German-German reproachment and against the critical reappraisal of the Nazi past were main motives of right-wing terrorists in the 70s. There were numerous attacks on GDR institutions, as well as against places of remembrance of national socialism. I put here as an example a map with some groups located in northern Germany on the slide. There you can see the geographic distribution of these groups in the late 70s, and they were all interconnected. They carried out armed robberies and bomb attacks. What was highly important to the perception of right-wing terrorism was the topic of inner Sicherheit, translatable as internal security, and linked to it terrorism. The experience of left-wing terrorism especially the Red Army faction, led to great insecurity in West Germany. In the 70s, left-wing terrorism was a dominant element of contemporary domestic politics. Additionally, left-wing terrorism has been allocated a leading place in German remembrance culture. You can see here on the slides and movie posters from the last 25 years. The narrative of a powerful confrontation between the Red Army faction and the state is still effective today. Far less attention was paid to right-wing terrorism. However, the early 80s were extremely violent when it comes to right-wing terrorism. In 1980 alone, 
19 people died as a result of right-wing terrorist attacks and murders, as well as two perpetrators. I've already mentioned the attack on the Munich Oktoberfest in September 26, 1980. Twelve visitors were killed, as well as the perpetrator, Gundolf Köhler, a student who had previously taken part in a couple of Wehrsport exercises organized by the Wehrsport Gruppe Hoffmann. However, he probably had no closer ties to this group. It is indeed the case that Köhler's motivation remained an unresolved question until today. An explanation might be that he wanted to fool the political climate and to put the blame on left-wing terrorists. But there were other acts of murder, more targeted and easier to classify in retrospective, such as the murder of the Jewish publisher Shlomo Levin and his partner Frida Pöschke in their home in Erlangen in 1980. The murderer was a member of the Wehrsportgruppe Hoffmann. In the early 80s, some right-wing terrorists also went underground, in some cases abroad. This terrorist scene was rather small but well organized and ready for anything, as evidenced, for example, by the attacks of a group called Hepkexel Group, which robbed banks and carried out bomb attacks against the US Army in 1982. You see here Alfred Hepp a leader of this group on the wanted poster on the left. Additionally, migrants became more and more the target of West German right-wing terrorists, such as in a deadly arson attack in Hamburg in 1980, killing two. You see here on the left a picture of the two victims, two young Vietnamese refugees. This was accompanied by public discourses on migration, a toxic and often racist debate on the problems of migration. Racism also became the dominant theme in right-wing terrorism. From the mid-80s, right-wing violence changed. It now tended more towards assaults, racist arson attacks, and pogroms. After unification, we experienced an immense amount of right-wing violence. Terrorists structures existed as well, but the largest share was neo-Nazi street violence, adding away not before 1994. You see here on the right a commemoration stone for five victims, women and girls murdered in 1993. When the terrorist group NSU, Nationalsozialistischer Untergrund, National Socialist Underground, began its murders in 2000, organized right-wing terrorism was hardly a topic of public discussion. The NSU operated undetected over the course of more than a decade, committing 10 murders and at least two bomb attacks. You see here on the right a uh, picture of a commemoration rally showing the, the pictures of the 10 victims. Since 2015, we have again experienced an enormous increase in right-wing terrorist violence, which can be seen in the context of heated debates about migration. The victim groups were mainly migrants and political opponents, but also increasingly politicians, such as Walter Lübcke, who was murdered in 2019. However, since the discovery of the NSU, we have seen a growing interest in right-wing terrorism, but victims have also become more audible and visible. The prominent visitors at the anniversary of the Oktoberfest attack in 2020 I talked about earlier would possibly not have come without the debate about the NSU and the recent right-wing terrorist 
events. In this debate, the question of why we know so little about the history of right-wing terrorism came up again, which brings me to my initial question and to the second part of my talk. I will now take a look at where the history of right-wing terrorism is missing from master narratives of the Federal Republic. I will focus on some aspects that I consider particularly relevant. Narratives about democratization, narratives about terrorism and violence, and narratives about anti-Semitism and racism, and about its victims. When we look at the historiography of the Federal Republic, we mainly hear a story of a successful democratic country, which was finally able to cope with the Nazi past, reaching its peak with the unification in 1989-1990. So to say, a history of liberalization and democratization looked at from its end. In recent years, this perspective has been increasingly questioned by historians. The history of the Federal Republic was not a mere success story or a development from darkness into light, as the historian Carola Dietzel critically put it. Democratization is more considered a complex process and also a struggle with many setbacks. Additionally, writing a success story hides continuities of inequality and omits the experiences of the disadvantaged. This observation also applies to the experience of the victims of writing terrorism who were often marginalized. I will return to that later. Today, I want to stress the argument that the history of right-wing terrorism did not find a place in the success story of democratization for two reasons. First, right-wing terrorism was not recognized as a significant social problem, while left-wing terrorism was considered as such. The threat of right-wing terrorism appeared low because it lacked a unified concept and a unified organization which contradicts our dominant perception of terrorism. Second, there is no closure or a happy ending of right-wing terrorism. It continues to exist and rarely has there been greater cluelessness about what to do about it than today. However, the narrative track of the Federal Republic, as the historians Frank Bies and Astrid Eckert put it, has not much space for stories of ambiguity that also include failure. My second point is the omission of right-wing terrorism from the history of terrorism and violence. In dominant narratives, West German terrorism begins in the late 1960s with the student movement, or at the latest, in 1970, with the founding of the Red Army faction. Until 1990, according to this prevailing perception, there was mainly terrorism from the left, later alongside with jihadist terrorism. I brought an example from the website LEMO, Living Museum Online, which is a virtual museum that cooperates with the official Germany's National Historical Museum. There it says, the beginnings of terrorism in the Federal Republic of Germany date back to the period of student unrest in 1968-1969. Such a perspective is also reflected in official, that means state interpretations and museum exhibitions. In the permanent exhibition of the official Haus der Geschichte in Bonn, House of History, for example, 
there is a station on left-wing terrorism, but not on right-wing terrorism. We can make the same observation with non-official interpretations. The Wikipedia entry on the history of the Federal Republic until 1990 lacks any reference to right-wing terrorism. This finding, of course, has major consequences for common knowledge about right-wing terrorism and academic knowledge production. So right-wing terrorism has a place on the margins when it is addressed. It is often compared to Red Army faction, as we can see with interpretations of the terrorist group NSU, which operated between 1998 and 2011. It was called, in reference to the Red Army faction, Brown Army faction. The consequences are highly problematic, though. Only collective knowledge about the Red Army faction is retrieved. No knowledge about right-wing terrorism is generated, for example, about the violent groups in the early 80s. In the end, right-wing terrorism is interpreted as a copy of the Red Army faction. Thus, an image of terrorism is reproduced that sees only left-wing terrorism as an archetype, although right-wing terrorism started much earlier. Furthermore, the history of right-wing terrorism has often not been connected with a more general approach to violence history that considers violence and the practice of violence as an analytical category in historiography. I want to give you an example. The weapon issue. Gun ownership and gun use play a major role in right-wing terrorism. A central activity by numerous right-wing groups has been and still is weapons collections and possessions. This is also reflected in the perception of right-wing terrorism and anti-terrorism measures. Weapons findings are usually presented to the public by the police or published, like on the left, in intelligence reports. Many of us can recall these as similar pictures. They have a large share in visualizing right-wing terrorism. Nevertheless, this immense importance of weapons for right-wing terrorism and the Federal Republic's history of weapons have not been analytically linked. What are the connections between general gun ownership in the population and gun ownership among right-wing terrorists? Where do right-wing terrorists receive their weapons and how do they decide which ones to use? Until the early 70s, right-wing terrorists mainly made use of circulating World War II weapons. Of course, this has to do with the fact that gun ownership was more widespread among the population because of the war. From the mid-70s on, it was mainly explosives that were used for bomb attacks. There were so-called specialists who collected and offered explosives, often possessing the skills to build complicated bombs. Finally, in the early 80s, right-wing terrorists began to use arson more frequently, so-called Molotov cocktails, since this was much easier in procurement and manufacture. These arson attacks on migrant homes gained their terrible relevance in the early 90s during racist attacks. So it would be relevant to examine how the choice of weapon, the practice and dynamics of violence affected the perception of the terrorist threat 
An arson attack, for example, suggests a lower degree of organization, more spontaneity than an explosive device, but is no less lethal. As a third point, right-wing terrorism is usually read as a male phenomenon, even though there were female terrorists, such as Christine Hewika in the late 70s and early 80s, who in retrospect even told her own story in a book. Moreover, female sympathizers, confidants and supporters, of whom there were a much larger number, are not considered. How would our perception of right-wing terrorism change we took the issue of women's agency more into account. I think we would understand the network character of this form of terrorism much better. The gender perspective also includes the question of whether there were forms of misogynist terrorism. This type of terrorism is not systematically recorded, so there is a large blind spot here. Some cases in the 1990s have been reconstructed, but the period before that is in the complete dark. A little more is known about one case, an arson attack on a so-called sex bar in Munich in 1984, perpetrated by a German-Italian neo-fascist terrorist group. Examining such cases more closely would help put current debates about misogynist terror, about insults and also femicides into historic context and reveal possible continuities of these kinds of crimes. My third and last aspect touches on the question of ideology. How was anti-Semitism and racism in right-wing terrorism discussed by society? As already mentioned, until 2011, there was almost no debate at all about the victims and how they should be protected. In fact, it was often the case that the group's anti-Semitism and racism were not even explicitly addressed. I would like to give an example. I have already mentioned the anti-Semitic murder of Shlomo Levi and Frida Pöschke in 1918. It was an outstanding crime, both in terms of violence, the two were executed in their own home, and in terms of the anti-Semitic motive. Many things were problematic about the handling of the murder. The police investigation focused first on the Jewish community and the reporting was extremely negative about Levin. But I would like to emphasize another aspect here. The crime was dealt with very little attention within the security authorities and it received very little publicity. For example, it was only very briefly mentioned in the official intelligence reports in the 1980s. Also, most studies on the history of anti-Semitism in the FRG missed the event. Even scholars of right-wing terrorism confined themselves to rough outlines of the incidents in question. This should be confronted with a completely different perspective, namely that of the victim group. Here, the memory was kept. This can be illustrated by a statement made by Paul Spiegel in 2001 when he was president of the Zentralrat der Juden in Deutschland, he said in retrospect about the Levin Pöschke murder. There was sheer horror about it and the Jewish communities, but also horror that this was apparently not perceived by the general population as it should have been. We also did not understand at the time why this did not result in an outcry from the entire population. 
Remarkably, the continuities of anti-Semitic violence hardly find a place in the master narratives of the Federal Republic. They are not remembered by the majority society, even after anti-Semitic attacks like the one in Halle in 2019. What seemed unimaginable in Germany happened in Halle, said German Federal President Frank-Walter Steinmeier after the attack. He did not mention, and I believe it really did not come to his mind in that moment, that anti-Semitic terrorism indeed had a place in the history of the FRG. Incidentally, Steinmeier received some criticism to the statement in the media and social media. People referred to the history of anti-Semitic violence in post-war Germany. This is an expression of a changed public, which is now more interested in the history of right-wing terrorism. Also, the silence about the victims of racism is striking. For a long time, violent acts against people of color were not in the public focus at all. Almost nothing is known about the victims of racist terrorism in the 80s, such as the fatalities of a mass shooting in Nuremberg in June 1982, where a neo-Nazi killed three and severely wounded three people of color. On the left, you see a gravestone of one of the victims I found on the internet, uh, which is placed in the US, but no other information is provided. Instead, the debate about these attacks, especially in the Nuremberg attack, moved into the direction of increasingly problematizing migration and portraying racism primarily as a consequence of immigration and failed integration. However, the victims were by no means without a voice. On the contrary, since the end of World War II, attempts can be observed to point out the threat of right-wing terrorism. After anti-Semitic acts in the 1950s, for example, Jewish publicists and scholars pointed out the persistence of anti-Semitism in the Federal Republic and received primarily rejection by the West German public. Since the 80s at the latest, we can observe increasing attempts by those affected to organize and speak out in the local context. I would like to highlight one group of relatives and survivors of the Oktoberfest attack who fought for recognition for a long time. They also expressed, and this is remarkable, solidarity with the victims of other right-wing terrorist attacks, such as the racist mass shooting in Nuremberg I just talked about. In 1982, the initiative in Munich invited survivors of the Nuremberg attack to speak on their commemoration event in Munich. They also referred to the devastating Bologna train station bombing which took place in August 1980, killing more than 80 people in a right-wing terrorist act. However, while in Bologna, the victims' associations achieved large publicity, this did not happen in Germany until 2011. In my opinion, it is one of the biggest omissions of the master narratives of the Federal Republic that they did not listen to the numerous statements of those affected by right-wing terrorism. Thus, the last silence about racism and anti-Semitism is related to the silence about the attempts of the victims to make themselves heard and visible. Even the narratives of the racist attacks of the early 90s hardly contain the statements of people of color, but they existed, for example, through the women of the Black German feminist movement that grew strong in the 80s in West Germany. They spoke out on the racism they experienced such as the well-known U.S. writer Otto Lord 
and Gloria Joseph, who wrote to Chancellor Helmut Kohl in 1992 after the racist programs of Rostock. Those statements are still largely ignored in the historiography of the Federal Republic. I will come to my conclusions. What are current challenges for historians? First, sadly enough, the topicality of the subject. The fact that right-wing terrorist attacks are happening again and again these days makes it difficult to historicize. It takes time to historically appraise right-wing terrorism, but changes are often faster. Second, the access to certain files is restricted above all intelligence files, which are still classified. That means the extent and nature of intelligence operations in right-wing terrorism is still a black box. Without having the necessary information, there is a lack of data to challenge state interpretations. Also, counter-narratives can thrive as well as conspiracy theories. I want to emphasize, however, that this problem applies to any history of terrorism, not only right-wing terrorism. Last but not least, I'm often asked what can be done against right-wing terrorism today? Are there any lessons from history that can be used for prevention? Unfortunately, I'm not able to answer that question. As a historian, however, I'm irritated by the surprise that always comes along with right-wing terrorist crimes as if right-wing terrorism were an absolute exception and not an important part of our history. Overcoming that belief and finding new narratives of right-wing terrorism is a first step, I believe, towards overcoming this paralyzing surprise. Thank you so much for your attention. Thank you for listening to the German Historical Institute London podcast. Follow us on social media and check our website to keep up to date with new episodes.